This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Do you know the poem about Christmas Eve? And all through the house, nothing is stirring, not even a mouse. That's not what is happening in Madeline Ryan's book, A Room Called Earth. Welcome, Madeline. Thank you so much for having me, Jan. Well, Madeline, when does your book take place and what's the action going on? Well, it is actually Christmas Eve Eve, to be exact, but it is Christmas time in Melbourne. It's all inside the mind of this very dynamic, central, insightful young woman as she gets ready to go to a party. I'm going to do a little quote, and this is about your woman. I'm not really wired to care for other people unless they ask me directly. I'm either completely immersed in myself or completely immersed in someone else. There's no in-between. So even in this preparation for the party, we learn it's a dress-up party, and she's going to wear a kimono. And there's a lot of discussion within herself whether she should wear chopsticks. (laughs) Well, you know, I'd like to think that she was attempting to be sort of culturally sensitive with that choice, but I think it's probably more aesthetic and she wonders how much to get into it and how much to give to it and how much to sort of pull back because she's constantly trying to figure out what's too much um, and what's just enough in terms of expressing herself and being truthful. And in part, I think because she, yeah, she has this quality of being totally in herself or so captivated by another person that she kind of takes them in in this very intense way and loses herself. And that's sort of demonstrated through, yeah, moving from her personal space where she cares for herself and gets ready and we're completely inside her. Mm. And then when she moves to these conversations with different people and she becomes immersed in observing them, And their effect on her to an extent, but she does become so consumed by that. And there's an incredible contrast between then her inner world and the nature of the conversations that she has with those people too. Well, even in her preparation for the party, there's one observer, Porkchop. (laughs) Porkchop is her fat ginger cat, who is her most loyal guardian and friend. He sits and stares at her. Uh, for, for most of the time and I think she says that he does a very good job at doing that and he's kind of like a very grounding anchoring energy in in her life which I think animals are in a lot of our lives is it omnipotent quality about them the all-seeing eyes of animals and he very much plays that role and witnesses her Look, you've got a wonderful line here. So she doesn't go with the chopsticks and she the line is mystery is my favorite accessory. She's very aware of how others perceive her. She's not awkward, she's beautiful. And others at the party tell her, what does she mean when she says to a woman at the party, I'm not my kimono? It's the most incredible contradiction, isn't it? It's this beautiful tension between, obviously the opening of the book is all about her expressing herself through this kimono. You know, she's like, I want to be seen at this thing in my beautiful you know outfit but then when she's actually asked about the outfit she's like yeah I'm not my outfit and it's like what how does that happen but I think in a way it's very truthful to the experience that we have being human beings it's like we are these bodies we wear these clothes but we're also kind of more than that you know we also can't be summarized by the things that we wear or 
the things even that we say it's like we're kind of these infinite miraculous mysterious beings and she sort of moves between thinking that she can express herself fully through something like an outfit and then feeling incredibly constrained by that exact thing and seeing the limitations of trying to be defined by what we wear say and you know so yeah I feel like there's a beautiful yeah that that sort of transition that she goes through is very interesting but her reflections in both regards are so illuminating whether it's about yeah the constraints of identifying with consumerism and what you buy and where you got it or you know, well, I'm choosing to wear this because it makes me feel liberated in this moment. I mean, I think that that's a really interesting Mm. tension. Well, she's a keen observer of people. And in this party situation, there is so much to see and it's, it's an overload. So what does she do in the middle of the party? She goes for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) So she's walking alone in the streets and she makes up stories about all the families who live in the houses. But how does she react when she hears footsteps? Yeah, well, she gets very unnerved. um, And all of these thoughts about her existence and mortality and life and death sort of start swirling around. And she sort of goes to these transcendent heights in her thinking about her body you know, her life, the value of her life, traumatizing experiences and the feeling of being followed kind of both real and imagined is kind of haunts her um, in different ways throughout the book, actually, but certainly it's at its height in this scene. And she, you know, she is walking the streets of Melbourne alone at night as a young woman. And that's, you know, she can't help but think about women who've been in that exact same situation as her and who've met very traumatic in her experiences so she ponders that and she sees parallels and patterns in just about everything and that's one of them so it becomes a very I guess poignant and confronting maybe moment in the book but also she finds a way as she always insists on doing to sort of even transcend her own fears about that and a kind of surrender to the night and to who she is and where she is in quite a I think it's a profound way, but it's it's also painful, yeah. Well, back to the party. She is very solo and she contemplates not having many women friends. Why not? Why doesn't she have women friends? That is such a good question. She's so, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think what I've kind of put it down to and reflecting upon it a bit more and why she came to those conclusions, I think her directness can be generally perhaps not how the women that she's encountered have, have oriented themselves and her, her relationship with her mother was quite fraught and I think defined how she then related to most women in her life, whether it's because of the relationship with her mother or because of experiences that she's had with woman friends that perhaps she's found have different values from her or whatever. I think it's probably a mix. So she she's all the degrees of give and take required in any relationship and also she learned not to over-smile and she had to choose to impress or manipulate or leave. So who did she think was getting the best of these relationships? Mm. In a sense, in the end, I'd like to think herself even if things were confronting or difficult or she noticed 
expectations that she didn't feel comfortable with. She always gleans so much wisdom from every relationship that she's had. Like they make the narrative glitter. It's amazing how things that are difficult and awkward and not what you wanted and why is he saying that and why is he wanting that and why are they expecting this from me? But if you can see it all and be in it and learn from it as she's determined to do throughout the text, they sort of become very rich they're like treasures like every experience is like a treasure you know and and so I guess in the end it's her that you know reaps the benefits of those experiences well she she had a lot of sexual encounters and remembered them by their actions or opinions not their names but you know to be fair she also technically doesn't have a name like they they don't have names and that has a kind of interesting quality about it but neither does she I mean she has a nickname which is mentioned but she's kind of lives in that slightly anonymous, expansive space as well. She Mm. really is perhaps more with nature than people. She's encountered a lot of tragedy in her life. And it's her logic of life that makes the weaving of her thoughts so interesting. She has spoken with psychologists and they've tried to tell her how people are connected. What has she learnt Well, she had one therapist who sort of told her to treat conversation a bit like a game of tennis or ping pong, where you're sort of just bouncing the ball back and forth, you know, nothing too serious, keep it light or, you know, just back and forth, back and forth, you know, hey, how are you? Have you been busy? Yeah, kind of. How about you? Yeah, pretty busy. It's this sort of level of courtesy that's cultivated that then people feel connected through as distinct from perhaps the content of what's being said and, you know, diving to the depths of their experiences and feelings and thoughts in the moment and what they're sensing in their bodies and what they're going through kind of isn't a priority for, for most people in interactions, or at least it's become an expectation that those things won't be the first thing you talk about when you meet someone. And she's meeting a few people for the first time. She's running into some people that are acquaintances or that she's known from the past as well. And with each encounter, there's a different expectation, I guess, about how how the ping pong game will go, you know, or what, what the rules are. And so she's constantly trying to figure that out and they're very different each time. And the rules, this is another quote from A Room Called Earth. She assumes she's supposed to be shy yet chatty, needy yet reserved, bitchy yet unassuming, emotional yet quiet. When you process these, no wonder she's confused. No wonder we're all confused. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's a, you know, and that's probably why she would struggle just to come back to the relationships with other women. I mean, I think most women in lots of ways are grappling with those contradictions because there's always pressure to be all of those things at once kind of or to, you know, once you feel like, oh, yes, I've embraced this aspect of myself, it's like, oh, yeah, is it too much? Yeah, she's constantly trying to find some harmony between all those different expectations about who she should be. She sees the synchronicity at the party and wanting to go to the toilet at the same time as a very handsome chap. That led (laughs) to a conversation, not what do you do, but what are your gifts and how are you serving the world? How does he react to this question? He's confused a little bit by this. And it brings up his own torment, I guess, about his own life choices to a degree because he's doing something that's 
kind of in alignment with what he wants to be giving the world, but also not quite what he wants and he's frightened. So when she sort of says this, he's like, well, I'm working as a draftsman, but technically I want to be an architect. But hey, uh, do you want another drink? (laughs) And he sort of quickly tries to move on. She's like, wait a second, why did that spin you out? And then it leads him to talking about his life and his experiences in greater detail. And he's able to kind of share a piece of himself with her that I guess if she didn't ask the question in that way, maybe that wouldn't happen or that it sort of starts to establish more of a connection and and an intimacy between them that is a very central part of the book as well. This book and your character has often been called neurodiverse. What does that mean? And are you happy with the description? Yes, I am happy with the description. I've I'm neurodiverse myself. I'm, I'm autistic. I've developed a very strong belief that neurodiverse people are kind of like the heightened needs and sensitivities and preferences of everyone. It's just that they're more conscious or they're more at the forefront of our personalities and who we are and how we operate in the world. And she's very much in alignment with that. And her psychology and the way her mind is structured parallels how my own mind is structured and because it's all in her mind that it dawned on me while writing it that well she must be neurodiverse then like we must have a connection in that regard because the structure of her mind parallels my own and neurodiverse characters can be incredible storytelling devices because everyone can see themselves in them in some way like if we really are that heightened awareness and sensitivity and the different sort of preferences it's sort of things that people aren't noticing or are skimming over most of the time but then a neurodiverse person will be able to inadvertently highlight different things that others will go oh opening up the way that we think and see things you know we're all human we're all connected well a room called earth takes place in just 24 hours but madeline ryan has given us a universe of thoughts of how men and women live with each other and themselves And is it possible to meet the perfect person, your soulmate, at a party? (laughs) Thank you very much, Madeline. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jan. (laughs) And now it's David's turn. Cultural, parental expectations and personal identity all collide in Michael Muhammad Ahmed's latest novel, the other half of you. So, Michael, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you for having me. And also, salamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you. Now, Barney Adam is the protagonist. We've met him before in the Lebs. And he is now traversing that rather precarious path of finding a partner, a wife. But there are cultural, religious and personal hurdles that he must surmount. To begin with, he's an Alawite Muslim. What's the problem with marrying outside the faith here? Um, This really looks at, um, I think, what the experience of being an Arab Australian Muslim man as an adult, Uh, whereas my previous works really look at those teenage years for young Arab Australian Muslim men, specifically within the the context of the September 11 attacks, uh, the 2005 Cronulla riots and the Scaf gang rapes. So this is a very different tone because uh, Banny Adam is speaking to his son. And so it delves into uh, themes of fatherhood. It it creates a more tender experience for me as a writer and hopefully for my readers. 
Now, in the question in terms of um, being an Arab Muslim Alawite and what the problem is with marrying the outsider, which is a big theme in the book, it's uh, Bani Adam, uh, who's loosely based on my own autobiographical experiences. Bani Adam's looking for a partner. Uh, you know, I, when I was growing up, I was very angry and very harsh on my community for this idea of not being open to uh, people from outside our community and our small religious sect coming in. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've become a little bit more forgiving towards my community for that kind of uh, prejudiced attitude. They're a, they're a heavily persecuted minority in Australia and around the world. If you're an Alawite, you're a minority within a minority within a minority within a minority because you're a branch of Shiism. Shiism is a branch of Islam and Islam is a, is a minority in Australia. So you can understand why small groups like this, which are called tribes, uh, tend to close themselves off as a way of feeling protected and empowered. The unfortunate thing for me as an educated Arab Australian Muslim man is that I had very big ideas uh, growing up ab about what love was. And so a lot of those um, old ways of thinking were not compatible with my worldviews. There are wonderful cultural practices that you expose in this novel of matchmaking, and they are both entertaining and excruciating. Would you care to reveal some of what uh, young Lebanese Alawite Muslims go through to find a bride? Yeah, I can. Uh, so a couple of things I'll say uh, first is that, um, you know, I, I grew up in an Arab Australian Muslim Alawite home. I don't identify as an Alawite. I now very proudly identify as just Muslim. I think that's really important to say because there's so much division in the Muslim world between sects um, and there's been a lot of conflict. A lot of lives have been lost over uh, what I think are very strong ideological uh, differences and, and interpretive differences that have nothing to do with what the Prophet Muhammad taught. And so, uh, you know, as a very strong political stance, I don't declare myself a, a member of any sect in Islam. I, I say I'm a Muslim and I study the different schools of thought and I participate in the cultural practices and the interpretations of the Quran that make sense to me. And I, and I ignore the ones that don't. Um, that's the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make in terms of these uh, cultural practices, I do explore in my novel, you know, Bani trying to be a member of his tribe and looking for a wife within his tribe. I feel very excited to point out for the first time on the public record that the original working title of my new novel, The Other Half of You, was actually called To Marry a White Girl. And the reason I came up with this title um, as a working title is because it really is about Benny ultimately ending up with an outsider and the, the consequences and the, and the challenges that both Benny and Ollie face through that experience, um, not just from Benny's cultural point of view, but, but you know, for what it meant for a young white girl to marry an Arab Muslim man at a time when Arab Muslims were very heavily scrutinized by the Australian government. Um, now, in the early half of the book, Benny is looking for a wife within his tribe and uh, I think when we talk about the cultural practices, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, it's very ritualized and there's a lot of, um, you know, mum and dad calling, you know, other Alawite parents and asking if we could come over in code for a coffee, which is just a way of trying to hook up the kids. I, I don't ever call it a, arranged marriages. I, I think of more of it as matchmaking, you know. The matchmaking that does take place finds Barney Adam actually marrying Fatima, and the reader can see that this is a complete mismatch because Barney is educated. He makes references to the literature of the European tradition and such. And Fatima is completely unaware 
And so Barney is caught in a marriage he doesn't like. So there's a couple of things um, I should point out. Um, firstly, I very much appreciate you framing this based around these characters as opposed to my own personal life. Um, my writing is autobiographical fiction. And so it does draw from my personal experiences, but I do think it's important to engage in my work as a work of art and as a work of fiction um, that takes a lot of creative liberties. In the case of uh, Bani and Fatima's match-made uh, arrangement, it's terribly mismatched. Um, it's, it's actually unfortunate that this happens quite a lot, you know. Um, in some cases, it's a very, um, th those kinds of historical matchmaking, which is around the world, the more dominant way in which people get together. I mean, the idea of a kind of romantic Hollywood love story is very new. Um, and statistically, you know, the, the history of it, it, it hasn't demonstrated to be any, any better in some ways. But, but I think for me, the problem uh, growing up wasn't so much about, you know, being incompatible with a particular girl from my tribe. There were actually so many wonderful members of my tribe that I, I, I love and adore and loved and adored. It was that I, I genuinely felt like an outsider, mainly because of my education, uh, being the first in my extended family among my hundreds of Arab uh, Muslim brothers and sisters and cousins and uh, aunties and uncles, being the first to be university educated. Um, but I think, you know, I try to give a very nuanced take on this because Benny doesn't only feel like an outsider in his own community. Uh, I think when you read the book, you find that when he tries to get out, he, he also feels like an outsider in, you know, the white middle-class left-wing communities. And in, in many ways, the book is about, you know, young people of color in Australia who are educated trying to find their place in this country. Another question arises then about the role of Australia in some ways. In the first half of the book, it's almost as if Australia is a benign backdrop where migrant families have to face these challenges of facing up to the new in many ways, of intercultural uh, exchanges, of questioning the faith. Do you see that as the role for Australia initially? Because I know there are other things you say about Australia, mm. but could this have taken place back in Lebanon? So I think one of the huge misconceptions uh, whenever I'm having dialogues about minorities in Australia versus the countries that our parents and our grandparents originally came from is that the places that they came from are really rigid and, you know, conservative. And it's our responsibility in, in countries like Australia to catch up. But, but actually what happens is because our families have migrated and are hung up on their migration and their displacement, they tend to stay quite conservative and hang on to old values. Whereas if you go to Lebanon, you find that in many ways, you know, Lebanese citizens in, in the Middle East are far more um, progressive on some attitudes because they've, they've actually been able to move forward. Whereas in migrant families in Australia, for example, they can tend to at times feel stuck and they hang on to old values that have actually transformed. And so I remember uh, in 2016, Peter Dutton, the immigration minister at the time, actually said that uh, second generation Lebanese Australian Muslims, that's people like me and my son as a third generation, are uh, the mistakes of the Fraser government allowing our families uh, into, the, um, into the country. And so, you know, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about and writing about recently um, as a new project is what it actually would have been like um, to undo what Dutton called a mistake, you know, what it would have been like to grow up in Lebanon instead of Australia. And I think there is an assumption that it would have inherently been worse for us, but there's a lot of research to suggest that in some ways it might've actually been easier uh, Australia does have a very racist context that you were talking about. It's a backdrop in my book that is very hard for a lot of our citizens to come to terms with. 
and and I try to grapple with that, but I don't I don't attack my reader. I try to grapple with it through telling what I'd like to think are tender and beautiful stories through the lens of my experience, uh, through the lens of my experience as a father towards my son. You do touch on Australia's racism, and that's through Barney Adams' marriage to Olive. And I think we'll let the reader find out about uh, that relationship. But Olive has a particular background and an uncle who is quite racist to the point of being a white supremacist. But there's something else I want to touch on. That narrative point of view you take, you tell this story as if you're speaking to your newborn son. And it's almost like you're beginning a new tradition of passing down the family story as if it's being created for the first time. Thank you for that question. It's a terrific question. I'll quickly talk about Olive and the uncle character, and then I'll get get onto the point on communicating to my son. Um, Look, I really go to great lengths as a creative writer, never to create one-dimensional characters. Uh, I think that in Australia, a lot of my readers in the past have struggled with my work because they are hoping that I have simple answers, you know, uh, black and white, uh, good and bad answers. If I'm portraying the Muslim community, either it's a positive portrayal or a negative one. If I'm portraying the white community, either they're the good guys or the bad guys, you know, they're the progressives. Uh, or or they're the uh, the white supremacists. In reality, uh, I just don't think that's how the world works. And so I I don't portray my characters uh, in either kind of dichotomy. I try to offer complex representations of all the communities I I speak about because I think the human experience is inherently complex and that human beings are capable of horrible things and beautiful things, hilarious things and tragic things side by side and simultaneously all at once. The second point, communicating the book to my son. So the the book is written as a letter to my son and his name is Khalil. I made the point earlier that my style of writing is autobiographical fiction. My name, of course, is not Benny Adam. Um, The mother of my son, her name is not Olive. Uh, And so these are fictionalized versions of, of real people. But I did choose to give my son's character his real name, which is Khalil. You know, we named him after the very famous and very beautiful uh, Lebanese poet, uh, Khalil Gibran. And also we named him after my grandfather. And so I felt like it was really important to express the story and the words that I had to say to my son in a more literal way than any other aspect of the book. And so he's directly addressed. And I I like your point on, you know, preparing him as the next generation and and the idea of communicating. This is a growing phenomenon for minorities around the world. If you look at one of the most uh, popular books that was written in the last few years by Tenehisi Coates, a prominent African-American award-winning author, his book was called Between the World and Me. And he wrote wrote it to his son as well. And I think that, uh, you know, people of color, men of color, women of color uh, who are, living in settler colonial societies, uh, they, they do generally feel like they have to prepare, intellectually prepare their children for the world that they're about to inherit. And so we kind of almost inherently feel the need to write our books as letters to our children because we're preparing them. Well, Mohammed, we have well and truly run out of time. The book is The Other Half of You. The author is Michael Mohammed Ahmed, and it's a Hachette release. So, Mohammed, thank you very much for talking with me today. 
Thank you so much for having me. And I'd also like to say once again, Salamu Alaikum, which means peace be upon you. And I extend that not just to you, David, but also to our wonderful listeners. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.